Welcome to On The Mic Podcast. This is your host, Tim Drake. On today's episode, it is the first of our Oscar Week coverage. Today, I talked with a number of Oscar-nominated filmmakers from the Oscar Short Film Program. Uh, Currently in theaters as well as on Oscar Shorts TV, you can watch all of the Oscar-nominated short films from documentary, animated, and live-action short. Uh, These are categories that kind of get overlooked a lot of the time uh, because, you know, they aren't the big ones that you see, you know, constantly promoted in the theaters, but they are the films that a lot of the times get some of these filmmakers started. Everybody starts, you know, whether it's in film school with short films um, or, you know, just stuff that you're making with your friends. Things like that is what gets people to the feature film stages. And so many of these filmmakers already have a lot of big credits behind them as well. Uh, But we wanted to be able to be a part of this. We always like covering the shorts program. Um, And, you know, it's just exciting to be able to talk to these people. I've already, just in the last two days, I've recorded seven interviews. And it's getting very time consuming. You know, we always cover a lot when it comes to Oscar week. And this year, it's just kind of kicking our ass. Uh, You know, Austin and I always go back through and watch all the Best Picture nominees all over again. And with us covering the shorts program and interviewing all of the shorts people this year, uh, that's 15 films just right there in the shorts program that we're watching. So overall, by the time this is all said and done, just this week we will have watched over 31 films. So that really gives you an idea of of everything that that this week entails. 31 films, 9 interviews in total, uh, 4 podcasts by the time this is all said and done. Uh, We'll be over at the Oscar red carpet tomorrow uh, filming our Oscar promo. And yeah, that's a uh, that that that's just kind of how this uh, this week is going. It's just kind of it's insanity at its finest, uh, but we absolutely love it. We're having a lot of fun with this, and yeah, it's it's just been an incredibly great time. Uh, today's episode, uh, we, we've got some really powerful ones on today's episode. Uh, we're going to start off this episode with the director of the film Lifeboat. This is one of the documentary short films. Uh, it, it follows volunteers from a German nonprofit group uh, that, that risk the risk their lives and stuff on the on the Mediterranean Sea to pluck out refugees in these sinking lifeboats that are pushing off from Libya uh, in the middle of the night. It's an incredibly powerful film, and I really love talking to Sky. Uh, about everything that went into making this film. Uh, the other person uh, that we've talked to from the documentary category that'll be on today uh, is Ed Perkins and his film Black Sheep. Uh, this is another one that it, it's an incredibly just intense film uh, that, that follows this man named Cornelius after his family moved out of London after a high-profile killing in their town. Um, and they find out that the new town that they moved into is run by racists, and Cornelius takes really drastic steps in order to survive living in this country. And this documentary was just shot in such a unique way. And, you know, it's, it was just something that really captivated me. That uh, was shot different than anything I've ever seen before. And it was really fun talking to Ed uh, about that. Um, and then we're also going to dive into the animated short films on this episode uh, with the film that is honestly my favorite of the animated short films. Uh, we, a lot of the short films have been phenomenal uh, in the animated category. And we've talked to a few of the directors that you'll hear uh, coming up in the following days. This one, though, is the only one, and I told them this on the episode, that actually made me cry. It was a very touching film, and I just absolutely loved it. It was called One Small Step uh, by Andrew Chesworth and Bobby Pantelius. If you recognize Andrew and Bobby's names, it's because they actually have worked on films in the past from Big Hero 6, Moana, Tangled, you know, big Disney and Pixar films. And, you know, they, they, they... ventured out and made their own short film, One Small Step. Uh, The Falls Luna, she's a a vibrant young Chinese-American girl who dreams of becoming an astronaut. Uh, This film is absolutely heart-wrenching, beautiful, fun, sweet. I I, I loved this film. 
So I'm a sucker for animations, that's no secret, and this one just really captivated me. I absolutely loved One Small Step. Uh, so these are the, these are the interviews you're gonna you're going to hear. So as Lifeboat, Black Sheep, and One Small Step. Uh, it was a lot of fun being able to talk to these guys, and you know, th there's a lot of great interviews to come. Um, we're still recording interviews even through tomorrow. So as tomorrow's episode releases, we're still going to be enthralled with plenty of other directors. So you'll you'll get an episode again tomorrow, as well as on Friday and then Saturday. Austin and I will be releasing our Oscar predictions of who we think is going to take home the Oscar gold this year. Uh, of course, that one is always one of our most popular episodes uh, every year. Uh, everybody loves hearing what we think. We don't know why. We, we're just idiots talking about this. Uh, but yeah, uh, that episode is one that everybody always enjoys. Uh, so that'll be coming out Saturday, the 23rd. Uh, you can hear all of our predictions there. Uh, thank you guys for tuning in for this week of all of our Oscar coverage. Uh, if you have not had a chance to get out to the theaters to see the Oscar Shorts program or check out Shorts TV, you can see those links on our website, onthemikepodcast.com. You'll be able to find those there. Uh, make sure you check all of that out. These films, every one of these short films is incredible. There's a reason that they are nominated for Academy Awards. And these filmmakers have just busted their ass to make these you know, just incredible. And and I encourage you to see every single one of them. We've got some really intense ones tomorrow uh, for you that we absolutely loved. Uh, so stay tuned for that. In the meantime, enjoy these interviews with Sky Fitzgerald, Ed Perkins, Andrew Chessworth, and Bobby Petilius. We will see you tomorrow. Enjoy this episode. And go check out the Oscar Shorts program on Shorts TV. Enjoy the episode. <laughs> First and, okay. first and foremost, uh, congratulations on your on your Oscar nomination. Oh, thank you. So, what what was that like to uh, to be waiting for those uh, the nominations to roll in and uh, and to hear your name called for Lifeboat? Well, uh, it's a bit stressful, as you might imagine. <laughs> um, but you know, I was I was in my pajamas in the basement, and uh, you know, it was just surreal. Of course, when when we learned that um, we'd been honored in that way, so it was a great experience. That, that, that's excellent. Uh, it's it, it's funny to to uh, you know I've covered stuff for the Oscars for several years now, and sure. even as I'm watching the nominations, I'm feeling stressed for all of you guys. So, <laughs> well, I appreciate that. So so I can only imagine what you guys go through. Yeah, let's spread it around a little bit. That's a good thing, I think. <laughs> well, I, I'm thrilled to talk to you uh, as I've been going through watching all of the short films, uh, you know, that have been part of this Oscar program. You know, Lifeboat is one that that has just really stuck out to me. You know, it's it's a crisis that a lot of people, you know, probably aren't aware of. You hear little bits and pieces of it uh, in the news, uh, but as you've got these, you know, German uh, this German team going out and finding these people that are leaving the coast of Libya, trying to escape, you know, the the terrible things going on in their country, and and rescuing them. It's just so impactful. To see, you know, those the lengths that they go to, and you know, sometimes the unfortunate circumstances, you know, that some of these refugees uh, have fallen upon. How was it that you found out about this story? Well, I was finishing up another film, um, which is the first in this refugee trilogy that we're doing, and um, in the course of finishing it, we had a lot of colleagues, um, both in the medical uh, community as well in, as the NGO community, telling us that as soon as the border to between Turkey and Greece was shut down for asylum seekers, which the EU did, um, that the the refugee flow um, 
would basically be pushed westward into the central Mediterranean, and that, in their opinion, they, uh, the, the EU simply wasn't prepared for the scale of asylum seekers that was going to be seeking asylum through that new route. And once we started researching it, we discovered that was very true already. It already been actualized, and that, in fact, there was a very high mortality rate of, of asylum seekers trying to cross from northern Africa um, into Europe uh, via the central Mediterranean. So was it hard for you guys to be able to get access to this? I, I imagine there's a lot of privacy and things like that, but you guys were able to talk to some of these asylum seekers and, and those that are going out to help the refugees. I mean, was this a difficult task to be able to film? It, it wasn't an easy film to make, certainly. Um, you know, simply because, you know, you're filming in a genuine triage situation on a search and rescue boat uh, where, you know, the stakes are life and death. Um, and so, so, you know, there are real people's lives at stake. And so our first big challenge actually was gaining access, right? Because I felt strongly that this isn't a story you could tell through archives. This isn't a story you could tell from afar. For it to really move the heart, you really needed to be in the middle of it as it unfolded. And really the only way to do that properly, I thought, was to be with one of these small non-governmental organizations that were doing the really hard work plucking people out of the water. And so it took some time to convince Sea-Watch, the NGO we were with, that um, we were trustworthy and that, that we meant to create something that we felt could help elicit empathy for asylum seekers and that we wouldn't interrupt or impose our filmmaking in a way that would um, endanger anyone's life. Was that... Was, was that fairly difficult to gain their trust what did you guys have to do to be able to to really show them you know that, that you were trustworthy and not trying to impede anything they were doing well it, it took time and conversations but i think i think if there was a linchpin moment or event it was that i was able to once i started the dialogue with them and i, and I at least uh, had the conversation going um, I was able to show them a previous film that I had done, the first film in this trilogy, 50 Feet from Syria. And once they saw what my team had created with that film, they kind of understood on a different level that we weren't trying to do a news piece. You know, we weren't trying to do a, a television documentary. We are actually trying to do a film about this experience that would touch people in a, in a that was more cinematic, that would touch people in a different way. Um, and I think that was probably the the thing that really moved the needle in terms of them saying yes to give us a couple births on the ship. So now there, there's, there's scenes that you guys have shot where, you know, you're, you're in some of the rescue boats going up to these refugees as they're throwing them, you know, life jackets and stuff. I mean, as, as you're approaching the, the boats, uh, I can't imagine much of the crew uh, could really be, could be on there. I mean, what, what were the emotions like as you're, as you're trying to film this and you're, you know, pulling up on these boats of refugees firsthand? Well, the first thing that you do, you know, when, when a, a boat of asylum seekers is discovered is, you know, you launch a Zodiac, right, which is um, a, a rib. Um, and in that is hopefully a linguist, and in that is a pilot, and then there's one additional crew typically who will be the one to make first point of contact with everyone on the boat, sort of do a medical assessment, to see, you know, if anyone is, um, because they've been exposed to the elements or because they're ill, find out from a triage standpoint whether someone is actively dying, um, and then they'll do a medical triage. But then, then beyond that, 
the first thing you want to do is get everyone a life vest, right? Because many of these, um, you know, rafts and small boats that the asylum seekers are on are not very seaworthy, frankly, and they sink all the time. And so you want to make sure that everyone has a life vest on so that if that vessel starts to go down, they won't drown immediately. So there's someone literally tossing life vests to people, sometimes on these, you know, sinking rafts. And that's, you know, it's, um, there's an urgency to it, as you might imagine, right? Because um, people are pushed off, sometimes people fall off, um, and, and if they are pushed off without a life vest, then they may drown. So you want to first get know what people need to survive and so because there's that urgency where someone could lose their life if things aren't done quickly it's frantic to some extent you try to keep it as calm as possible but there are real lives at stake and so um it's um it's pretty harrowing yeah i I can only imagine what that had to have been like to to be witnessing that that firsthand what one of the moments in the film that just kind of it just kind of ripped my heart out was even, even once the the refugees have been pulled off, um, you know, the, these little rafts that they're on is the fact that they have to quickly destroy them as well uh, so that they don't float back uh, to be used for, uh, for child sex trafficking. And just to know that that element, you know, play, plays back into this that heavily too, you know, it, it, it just kind of ripped my heart out that these people are trying to flee something and that even once they, you know, may have escaped, that their their escape mechanism, you know, could still be turned for for evil from their country. Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult situation that um, the asylum seekers are in, um, and it's a risky journey that they've chosen to undertake, and um, they don't do it without the knowledge that they could die along the way, and that tells you a little bit about their motivations, right, and what they're coming from. Right. We, we interviewed many, many asylum seekers during the course of filming the project on board the search and rescue vessel. And, you know, we heard um, a pretty common narrative thread emerge over and over again, and that was that uh, despite where someone's country of origin was, and there were people from Syria who were fleeing the war in Syria, there are people who are fleeing forced conscription in East Africa, there are people, you know, fleeing the war in Libya, but the the same narrative emerged, which was that as soon as they crossed the border into the fractured nation state that is currently Libya, that they were trafficked. Um, and they were detained um, in these ad hoc detention centers where the women were raped and the men were turned into indentured servants and forced to work as, you know, essentially modern day slaves without pay for months on end, often in rock quarries, breaking rock. And it was only after they could secure money. Uh, from their country of origin, usually through relatives sent via Western Union, that they were released from these detention centers. And then and only then did they have an opportunity to risk their life on a raft to leave the shores of Libya. So, you know, the the cycle of suffering and the, the extent of suffering that these people had undergone was extreme and um, extended. Oh, that's, I, that's just horrendous and... You know, I, I'm I'm glad that you guys are bringing light to be able to help help people understand what these asylum seekers are going through, and to understand the risks that they're taking. And I think it it helps shift the paradigm. You know, as as people you know have such a negative view, you know, on asylum seekers and refugees, to be able to see that you know these people are are fleeing from nightmares we can't even begin to fathom here in the United States. And yeah, that's right. And and it really it really brings 
you know, a whole different perspective to it. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm in agreement with you there, certainly. I think that the more we can sort of develop empathy for our fellow human beings, I think the, the, the easier it is for us to shift out of political rhetoric, regardless of where you sit on the left or the right, and start talking about the fact that, um, you know, asylum seekers are simply human beings, just like you and I. Right, right. And they want the same, they want the same things we do, right? They want, um, they want security of person. They want three square meals a day. They want safety and a good education for their children. Um, just fundamental human things, right? And I think it's really easy to be complacent sometimes and to frame asylum seekers as the other. And I don't think that really helps anyone. I think we have to understand them as um, our fellow human beings who happen to be in really difficult circumstances and are trying to survive. Yeah, exactly. It's not. It shouldn't be a a left issue or a right issue. It's just simply a human issue, and that's and that's how it should be treated. Yep, that's exactly right. So, before we wrap this up, too, I I I wanted to kind of know the impact that it had on you guys. You know, there, there's several instances where you guys are on the beaches, and you're encountering those that that didn't make it. Those that you know unfortunately passed on and their bodies had washed up on the beaches what what was that like to encounter that and and the nature that they that they handle those situations well so the the scenes you're referring to you know um the, the characters in the scenes were volunteers from from an organization called the red crescent society which is basically you know the the arabic version of of um, the red cross and they were doing the really difficult and hard work of literally collecting the corpses that wash up on the shores of Libya and Tunisia and then um, finding a way to bury them, despite the fact there's been no DNA collection, just so that the corpses have uh, a place to rest and they don't, you know, literally degrade right. in, in the open elements. And so, you know... That work is very difficult, and I think everything that we went through as filmmakers, whether it was in Tunisia or on the boat, sort of pales to um, the work that those Red Crescent volunteers were doing and, and the work, frankly, that the Sea Watch volunteers were doing, who were all volunteers who had decided that, you know, the fact that people were drowning off the coast of Africa um, in our modern-day times was um, was not something they're going to accept without action. And so they had taken time out of their busy lives, whether they were a doctor or a captain or, you know, um, a physician's aide, and decided that at least they were going to do what they could and volunteer to save as many lives as they could. And that that's deeply inspiring to me, right, to, to see other people who say, we're not going to solve this larger problem necessarily, but we can save this human life and we can save this human life. And um, to me, that makes the, 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 the stories of the people that we tell in Lifeboat incredibly optimistic, right? Because it's inspiring to see our fellow humans intervening when our governments aren't. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So now as, as the Oscars, you know, come up this Sunday, where, where will people be able to, to see Lifeboat, you know, following, following the Academy Awards? Yeah, so Lifeboat is streaming um, right now on the New Yorker website for all to see in the U.S. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. 
Excellent. It's also playing on, um, you know, it's a, it has a theatrical rollout with shorts HD, where all the Oscar-nominated shorts are playing nationwide right now. Yeah, yeah, we've got we've got everything in theaters right now, and we hope yep. that everybody will get out and, and see and see all of those. Uh, but Lifeboat is, is such an incredibly important film, um, and something that you know is, it may it may not be happening, you know, these very events that you guys filmed in our country at the moment, but events that are very similar are, and it's something that we need to be paying close attention to and and finding that human empathy for. Couldn't agree more. So, well, thank you so much, Sky, and best of luck this Sunday. So we're, we're definitely rooting for you guys here. All right, pleasure. Thank you so much. You bet. Have a great day. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Not a problem at all. First off, congratulations on the Oscar nomination. That's such an incredible feat to do. Thank you. Yeah, it still sounds a bit surreal when you say it like that. But, um, yeah, it's an amazing honor. <laughs> what, what was the experience like of finding out that you had been nominated for an Academy Award? <laughs> um, surreal. I mean, you never make these films expecting or something like that. You think you're going to get close to, 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 to the Academy Awards. Um, so when uh, the live stream, when the announcement happened uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was actually on, on set filming something else. And I couldn't quite bring myself to watch the announcement live online so i i was sort of stalking around outside just kind of walking around uh, getting very very nervous um sort of burying my head in the sand uh, waiting for someone to give me a call and uh, let me know whether it was good or bad news and, and, and thankfully it was good news so yeah we feel very very humbled so that's it, it, it's got to be the worst just to kind of be pacing just waiting to hear that news and and not I, knowing yeah, when I they're going to tell you happened and, and now we're now we're talking about your film black sheep and it, this was such a compelling film uh tell me a little bit about how you came about uh about this uh, story of cornelius yeah so our film black sheep is about it's, uh, an extraordinary young man called cornelius walker um cornelius and i have mutual friends um so we were put in contact and we met for a coffee in london um and we were talking about film in general and our lives and, and I asked him a little bit about, about him and, 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 and his story and with all the sort of uh, charisma and honesty and vulnerability that you see in the film, he just started to tell me about this specific part of his life um, just right there in the coffee shop and I was totally blown away, um, not only by the story but by his delivery, by his, his ability to to um, express really complicated emotions and take me through the decisions he made in a, in a way that was just hugely compelling um and uh i stayed in contact with cornelius and we, we became friends and we, we we built a relationship of trust and 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 i eventually asked whether he would consider letting me uh and and the amazing teams at lightbox and the guardian help him bring his story to the screen as a documentary and um and effectively he said yes and uh we then embarked on, on, on the process of of doing that was was he fairly hesitant at first to to tell the story? No, I don't think he was. I mean, he, he he that sort of willingness, that ability to be open and vulnerable straight away, was the thing that captivated me. You know, especially especially in England, where we are quite reserved, to go and have a coffee with someone, and twenty minutes after you meet them, for them to be so open about these difficult memories and these difficult decisions that he was forced to make. Um, you know, it, it was it was very. Um, 
uh, it was incredibly absorbing. You know, I, I, I was sort of in awe of, of, of his ability as a storyteller, uh, of his own of his own journey. Um, and these kind of documentaries are, are always based on trust, right? They're always based on a relationship of trust between the filmmakers and, and the person who who, who, who trusts the filmmakers to, to, to tell their story. And so um, I think it really helped that we built a relationship of trust, that we had mutual friends, um, and that we spent a bit of time getting to know each other before launching into, uh, into the actual sort of production side of it. Um, so you'd have to ask him kind of what his internal process was when I asked him. I'm sure it wasn't an immediate yes. Yeah. Uh, but um, I hope the process has, has been somewhat cathartic for him, and, and you know he's out here with us in LA this week, and, and, and we're really good friends, and, and I feel really really proud to to to, to know him and be a, a little part of helping bring his story to people. So now I I had read that when when you guys were making this uh, this film, it's kind of a, a unique style of documentary where I mean it focuses yeah. a lot on Cornelius telling his story. While it cuts back to, um, to to people that are, are kind of reenacting what he went through, and and I understand you shot this in the actual locations, and that these were not actual actors uh, that you had cast to play the roles. Yeah, so the process, yeah, I guess it is a little bit different. Um, I mean, every time you take on these projects, you know, you have to be driven by by the by the needs of the story. You know, what what's the very best way to tell the story, and and um, this process started with a sit-down interview with Cornelius, so him and I sat down for about eight, nine hours, I think, over, over two days, and talked through this very specific sort of four or five years of his life, and we talked about it in a huge amount of detail, um, and uh, it was a really good process because it was just us in the room with, it, with, with, with the director of photography, it, it felt very small, very intimate, um, we used a, a mirror box system, so, so he was... You know, I was able to look him directly in the eye, and, and so it really felt like we were having a conversation um, as two people, um, rather than it being a sort of formal sit-down sort of documentary interview. Um, I then went away and took all that interview footage and edited uh, a string out, essentially. Um, and uh, I then, you know, I was faced as the director with the challenge. You know, how do we best? bring this story to life? Do we just leave it simply as an interview with these cuts to black? Uh, do we use animation or, or do we try something else? And, and Cornelius and I talked a lot and one of the things that always resonated with me was that, you know, that, that this, this place, this town, not very far from London actually, but it was somewhere that he hadn't really ever gone back to, you know, somewhere that sort of haunted him, I guess, and, and, and held very painful memories. And we talked a lot about how he would feel about going back and what kind of emotions that would, would bring up and, and, and whether doing that would help tell the story. And so we decided to go back to the actual town um, and we we found all the exact places where these events in his life happened. So um, there's a moment in the film where he, uh, he gets into a fight uh, with, with, with some local guys and, and gets hurt. And, and the field that you see that fight take place in in our film is, is the actual field where it happened in real life. And, and we went back to the house that he used to live in and we persuaded the people that own that house to, to let us film there. And we, we found his old bedroom and we repainted it the exact shade of blue that it was. So, so my, my process was to try to, um, to, try to, to bring that world back to life as closely as possible, and then we took Cornelius back and 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 brought these difficult memories uh, back to life in front of him, and filmed his reaction to seeing these memories come to life in front of him. Um, all the people that you see in the film are, are essentially non-actors, um, other than 
uh, an astonishing young actor called Kai Francis Lewis, who, 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 who plays a younger version of Cornelius. Everyone else are just young men and women who live in that town today. Um, none of them have real any acting experience, um, and, and that they were willing to take part in the story and wanted to bring this story to life, I think says a huge amount, um, and, and they were amazing to work with. Um, but my, back, my background also is in documentary, so I don't have a background working with actors, and so it was, you know, it was exciting, and it felt, it felt right to be, to be working with, 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 with non-actors. And you clearly get, you get something different from that experience. Yeah, you, you, you absolutely do. I mean, no, no part of it felt like it was anybody acting. It felt like you were immersed in those very experiences that Cornelius went through. And, and that was the intention, you know, with these, these I, I do not see these as, as, as reenactments. I see these as, 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 as an attempt to bring to life these very difficult memories, these sort of fragments of, of, of painful memory, but, but importantly, you know, with non-actors, but also to, to, to film Cornelius's verite response, his, his in-the-moment response to, to these memories being brought to life. So, you know, we, we would bring these moments to life, but put him back in the scene and then film his response to it. And, and I think that adds, a, adds an interesting layer to, to, to the film. So uh, when you cut kind of between Cornelius telling the story and, and those scenes, the coloring is very distinct between the two. Was was that intentional to, to kind of help drive the story? Yeah, absolutely. We, we, you know, we wanted... Um, I worked with a, with a really wonderful director of photography, Mike Paleodemus, who um, worked on a short film called Stutter a few years ago, which won the Academy Award. And, and Mike and I talked a lot about, about lens choice, but also about color palette. And um, at, at, in one part of Cornelius's story, he decides to wear very bright blue contact lenses. And so we felt it would be interesting uh, to, to, to use that very bright blue color all the way through the film. Um, similarly, to play off of that, we, we, we sort of embraced this sort of rusty orange color. Um, and and I, I didn't want those moments to feel as though we were trying to pretend that they were real. You know, they, I wanted them to, to be bold and saturated and, 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 and feel heightened, you know, feel like memories, feel, feel like how we remember moments from our past, which for me at least, you know, is with more saturated colors, but also these sort of fragments, these quick fragments. Um, rather than anything which plays out too long. And, and also in terms of uh, lens choice, for me, you know, I, I don't remember memories on a mid-shot. You know, my memories of my childhood tend to be textures, close-ups, you know, sounds, smells. Um, and so we tried to, to, to bring that into the filmmaking process by, by using, you know, lots of long lens, uh, long lenses, but also very wide lenses and trying to stay away from, from that sort of mid mid-lens um, focal length. Um, so they were, they were all sort of conscious decisions, uh, and, and, and I, think, I think the crew did a really amazing job to, to bring that to life in a way which, which um, does, you know, which serves Cornelius' story and serves his testimony, uh, which has to lie rightly at the heart of the film. No, I, I think it absolutely does. It's a, it's a beautiful way to drive the story, and, and it really makes you feel the emotion kind of going between the scenes of being in that moment, you know, as he's experiencing it in his youth. And then the emotional response that he has seeing those back and explaining, you know, the, the remorse later in the film and, and the things yeah. that he felt during those times. And, and the other, I mean, the other thing we did at the film, which, um, because of the process of, I, I edited the film. And so when, when I just had the computer, I went back into the edit, started to cut, uh, you know, an assembly of, of the story. And, um, Obviously, there were lots of 
I was left with this assembly on my timeline of, of, of the interview with lots of black holes in it. And as we started to shoot the drama or the, the reenactments and, and put those that, that original footage into the film, I became quite attached to those black holes. They, they seemed to be giving me something in terms of pacing. Um, and, and also, I thought it was interesting to leave them in so that we're being as transparent as we can with, with our audience. We're, you know, I, I wanted to show the audience where we're cutting the interview um, and not try and paper over all of those, those edit points with, with B-roll. You know, I wanted to, I, I don't know if we achieved this in any way, but like, the intention was to try to, to, to give viewers as close an experience of Cornelius as I found in, in the interview room, you know, and, and for it to be as direct as possible um, and unfiltered as possible. So where we were making cuts in the edit, we wanted to own up to those and show you those so that we were, we were sort of showing you the sketchbook in a way. Yeah. W- with everything that kind of happens in this where, you know, he, he basically embraces the hate to try and fit in and not be bullied, w- what do you kind of hope is the is the greatest message and learning experience that people take away from this? I, 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 I try not to, 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 to think too hard about what we want the film people to take away. I mean, clear, but because it's, because it's clearly the story, right? This is his story. It's his emotions. It's his feelings. And, um, a lot of what, what I was trying to do was to, to, to um, allow his voice to be heard and, and, um, to get out of the way, really, and to try to allow viewers to experience him as directly as possible without without you getting in the way. Um, but clearly the film, you know, brings up these big themes. You know, it, it talks about race, it talks about identity, it talks about survival, it talks about belonging. And I guess what I, what I can say is that the response since the film came out of The Guardian has been really overwhelming. Um, again, I can't talk for Cornelius, but I, I, I know that he received a ton of messages, and, 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 and we have too, from people all around the world thanking him for his honesty and his bravery and his willingness to talk about this complicated story, because you know it is a complex tale, and, and it's an ambiguous tale, and um, what a lot of people have said is, you know, thank you for saying the things which I felt and, 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 and couldn't bring myself to say publicly, or even say to myself, and, and I think what Cornelius has done is, 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 is important and it's, it's extraordinary. And, and, you know, we, whenever we're making these, these documentary films, you know, we, we, we are totally indebted to, 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 to the people who sit in front of, of our cameras and bear their souls. And, and, and I'm in awe of anyone who can do that. And I think, I think what Cornelius has done and, and the way he's done it is um, a huge amount of admiration for him. And, and he's an extraordinary person. Yeah. It, it, it truly is an incredible film that just tells, an amazing story of, uh, of you know, his, his self-discovery. And, you know, I, I hope that a lot of people are able to get out and see this. You know, I know it's part of Shorts TV right now, part of the Oscar Shorts program that people can see in theaters. Um, where, yeah. where will people be able to see it after the Oscars? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's online on the Guardian website. Um, and, yeah, it's been, it's been going around theaters around, around the U.S. And, and, you know, one of the amazing things about, about being nominated for an Oscar is that it, 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 we, we, we very much hope that it brings more people who might not have found our film to, to Cornelius' story, and, and, and that's been great. And I think, you know, that the amount of people who have now seen it because of the increased awareness of the film and the press is, is, is amazing. And, and, you know, whenever you, I don't know, when you start these projects, you just have no idea whether, you know, it's going to be a film that 20 people see or, or, or lots more people see. And, and when it does happen, that lots of people get to 
here and, 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 and it makes them emote, it makes them think, then, um, then that, that, feels, that feels amazing. Um, we, we're often sort of asked why, we made a conscious decision, you know, Corn, Cornelius and I worked on the film you know, together and, and, and um, one of the things we're often asked is, is why we left, it, left the film on such an unsettled note. And without giving anything away, we, we, we made a conscious decision not to wrap his story up with a nice, neat bow and, and, um, and give answers, you know, because the, the, the issues are complicated and they don't have simple answers. And, and um, we also felt, Cornelius felt as well, that um, the truth is that a lot of people who go through what Cornelius went through don't come out and don't have their stories come to a film and, 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 and don't come out and, and, and turn into the incredibly uh, uh, well-balanced wonderful person that he is you know a lot of people who he spent time with back then their lives are taking different trajectories and and there are still lots of people who are experiencing things that he experienced um and so we we want to try and we wanted to try and force viewers to to feel uncomfortable at the end and be forced to take the issues that the film raises out of the cinema with them and, and be forced to really think about them and, and, and think about how we as a society should respond to them so again, I, I think you guys did just an, an amazing job on this film. Uh, congratulations again on the on the Oscar nomination. So I wish you the best of luck this Sunday, and uh, we're rooting for you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for reaching out. It does mean the world to, to be able to talk, and, and, and we hugely appreciate it. Yeah, not a problem at all. Have, have a great rest of your day, and, uh, and great luck on Sunday. Thank you, sir. You bet. We'll see you, Ed. Right, excellent. Well, I, I'm I'm excited to have you guys on here. So, uh, first off, congratulations on your Oscar nomination. It's an incredible feat to uh, to hit. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a crazy ride. Uh-huh. Yeah, what what was that experience like to uh to to be sitting there watching the nominations and hear your name called? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, I think we all woke up early in the morning. I woke uh, me and my girlfriend woke up at five o'clock in the morning just to hear the Oscar nominations and. Uh, when they said one small step, um, I screamed at the top of my lungs and then jumped onto the floor and just started crying, you know, like <laughs> a, a normal man And then I called, uh, I called Andrew Chesworth right away, and I called our producer, Shapu, right away, and I just started crying to them as well. Um, so it, it was a roller coaster of mixed emotions, as you can imagine. Um, and, 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 and when I called, uh, uh, Andrew Chesworth, he was also crying as well. So. <laughs> we I know, you know, crying over the phone. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I, I woke up to my fiance shaking me, saying, "Oh my God, you got nominated! You got nominated!" And my eyes just perked up, and I launched out of bed, and my life just flashed before my eyes. It was almost <laughs> like every single person in my family who supported me, all my mentors, colleagues, friends growing up who believed in me, like all these moments in my life just flooded my mind. It was like hyper awareness. And that's the first time in my life I felt that feeling. So it was really surreal and very um, gratifying. And it still feels like a dream. <laughs> like Bobby said, we were kind of tearing up over the phone and thanking each other and, and just talking about what led us here and how unbelievable it was. It was really a remarkable moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can I can only imagine that feeling. I mean, especially where, I mean, you guys are no stranger to Oscar-nominated films. I mean, you guys have both worked on films like Big Hero 6 that won the Oscar and, and, uh, and, and other Pixar and Disney films that have been 
in that category, but now this is something that you guys embarked on on your own. And I have a little bit of a bone to pick with you guys because I've watched through a ton of films all week long prepping for the Oscars. And yours was the only one that really made me cry. And I take issue with that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very meaningful. You know what's interesting about that is we, we get that reaction a lot. But Bobby and I, when we were crafting the story and trying to make it feel resonant to us, I remember very specifically getting emotional when the film started to work, when it started to really reflect the emotions and feelings and experiences that we had. Like, because there is a point where you have a thought of what your film is, and then when you're watching it, it's giving you that feedback in return, and you're realizing, I think this is actually starting to feel like what we want it to feel like. And it was the result of a lot of searching and a lot of failure and a lot of showing it to people and getting their reactions and making sure, you know, that sanity check of just showing it to people who haven't lived with it every day. But that's really meaningful for you to share that with us because it was a very long and very difficult discovery. And you know how it is, um, like when you embark on something like making a short film from scratch, it, it's so much hard work. And, uh, and I'm sure with every nominee like in this category, it's just so much hard work. So when there's even uh, inkling of getting recognized for that. It's you don't even think of yourself, but you think of the team that helped you make it, yeah. and you think of all of the uh, animators, modelers, textures that helped you make it, and all of the waking hours, early mornings, and everything else, and all of that comes to the forefront when you get announced or someone announces. The, the, the film that you're working on and it's overwhelming, you know, just because you're just kind of, you're so happy for the team. Yeah. And it, I mean, it, it came together so beautifully for those that haven't seen it yet. It, it it's a film about a young Chinese American girl who, who dreams to be an astronaut. And, and it, it's something that, I mean, especially minorities in, in, in America don't often, mm-hmm. you know, get characters like that built for them. So, I mean, so often we just see, the typical white hero character in every film. And so it's endearing too, to see, you know, a, a minority character that is able to, to give young girls somebody to look up to. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was definitely on our minds and something that mattered to us a lot. And my fiance is Korean American. She came here when she was 14 and she's got that tenacious, ambitious, nothing's going to stop me kind of spirit. And then our producer, Shafu Zhang is Chinese American. He came here when he was eight his family has a very entrepreneurial streak and his dad really supported him in the founding of Tyco studios um, and supported us in making this film. And I think a lot of that experience came from our, ourselves and Bobby's mom came here from the Philippines um, as a young woman and raised him by herself and, and always supported Bobby in his dream of becoming an animation artist. So everything was like, man, I feel like it was like a real, amalgamation of like um asian aesthetics eastern uh, like cultural aesthetics as well as uh western because we all I, I you know i was born and raised here and obviously like andrew Shepsworth was born and raised here and we wanted to marry the two and see what we came up with you know uh there's like a lot of different um just sort of um story moments or just kind of like feelings that we both had that were universal regardless of where we came from. Yeah. You know, I think one thing that's really fascinating is 
Bobby and I are the directors, and we really can only speak English competently. Mm. And then our producer, <laughs> Shelf, is English, speaks English and Mandarin. And then most of our crew in China only speaks Mandarin. Mm-hmm. So it was mm-hmm. really... Um, so made it. Yeah, it was, it was really a remarkable fusion of two different groups of people. Mm-hmm. That, that's awesome that, that both groups had, had that such a great representation within that. So as far as the as far as the story goes with her, you know, yearning to be an astronaut, where where did that where did that idea come from? I think it came from us trying to find the most iconic representation of the ultimate dream, mm-hmm. something that was visual and spectacular and a little bit timely, because right now space is sort of back in vogue again, and Bobby and I love the 1960s, everything like artistic and kind of cultural going on in the 60s with the space race and the civil rights movement and the art that was happening on the American scene. Like, it feels like a lot of that spirit is coming back with social justice and uh, SpaceX getting us back into space and China trying to go to space and kind of prove their mettle as a society that can accomplish those things. Um, A lot, and, and then the art movement happening in, in the U.S. right now in animation, there's a lot of different styles with like the, the Spider-Man movie and the Disney shorts that have been coming out. So I think we wanted to kind of bring a lot of the things we love into the film in a contemporary way, and space felt like this great icon of aspiration to sum it all up. Because Bobby and I, our dream was to be animators. We both had that spark at a young age, and we both had that moment of achievement walking through the doors at Disney and feeling like we realized our dreams. And that journey was something we wanted to put into the film. But making her an astronaut made it kind of a universal idea for everyone, like reaching for the stars and aiming for the highest heights. So what 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 have you know some of your fellow colleagues and stuff with so many of the Disney films and stuff that you guys have worked on? How did they all kind of respond to this? Of course, where where they have their their own uh, kind of horse in the race here. How, how did they respond to your film? Uh, everyone was really supportive. I mean, Bobby and I lo- loved Disney and loved that job. And really, the only reason we left was because this opportunity to make an original film came along in the form of Shafu and his startup company and his offer to us to to make films for his studio as directors. And so I think everyone at Disney understands that because most of the people who work there are natural storytellers and want to tell their own stories and if given the opportunity would probably want to tell their own story. So I think everyone's been very supportive and we love sharing it with them and they love you know, um, engaging with us about how our journey went making a film outside of the system and mm-hmm. it's been nothing but supportive. In fact, yesterday I ran into Jennifer Lee, the director of frozen and now frozen Two, And she gave us like the biggest hug and was wishing us all the best and said she loved the film. And it was, I think, I think animators and filmmakers in general understand that someone else's success is their own success. Because if you want to tell stories, you want to create a climate where other people can tell theirs. And I think our industry in general is very communal and very supportive in that way. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree. And I mean, especially on the, on the animated side there, there's nothing that I love more than, than watching just all of the different styles come together to be able to tell such incredible stories. And you, you kind of lose some of the restrictions, of course, going into animation that the live action films have. And, one of my favorite things, and, and you guys accomplish it beautifully, 
is the color textures and things and the way that camera movements are able to work within animation. And there are so many instances that, that you guys do this beautifully. One of my favorites is when she finally does become an astronaut and she takes that, that first step where it kind of cuts back to her as a child wearing those moon boots. And that, yeah. that just pulled at the heartstrings. <laughs> you guys had it just so perfectly colorized and everything. I, I just loved that. I remember Bobby laboriously painting those color keys for those exact scenes, and I remember staying up very late trying to get animating that that shot, the series of shots, and trying to get the camera placement just right for like. You told me when you were animating that too, you started to get worked up and emotional. Oh my gosh! Yeah. The, the music uh, was always playing in our heads when we were animating because, you know, you're scrubbing through the scene and you know because you're an animator. But, yeah, I remember that was like I, the first time in my life I got choked up while animating at my desk because it was like one in the morning and my head was kind of in that funny place and I was working long hours and I'm hearing this music in the film animating getting this pivotal moment in the film and, yeah, you, you just get into it and you feel like maybe this, this is working for me and mm. I'm really close to it, but it's still working for me somehow. So again, you know, this is this is one of my my absolute favorites of, of all the films that I have have spent the time watching, and I hope that a lot of people are able to to still get to see this. Of course, right now it's part of the Shorts TV program, part of the Oscar Shorts program yeah. that's in theaters. Where else will people be able to see it after the Oscars? After the Oscars, Shorts TV for a few weeks will be one of the only like official venues. I mean, there might be a few other outlets, and I can confirm that with you in an email if you like, but. It'll be live again on Vimeo and YouTube on the Tyco official channels uh, on March 24th. So about a month after the Oscars, it'll be back. But I think in the meantime, the Shorts TV tour is all over the place. And actually, my parents just saw the film in theaters with the other Academy Shorts uh, in San Antonio, Texas, right near where they live. So I know it's a pretty ubiquitous uh theatrical tour at the moment yeah but there will probably there will be a few weeks where it might be a little difficult to see online but then it'll be back on march 24th excellent and do, and do you guys have any other any other projects in the works at the moment we do yeah so right now our producer Fu, who uh, started the company and produced one small step for bobby and me he's directing a short uh financed by a chinese corporation for a streaming service and we can't say too much about it yet but Shampoo's directing based on a Chinese mythology. Uh, I'm producing this time instead of directing, and Bobby's art directing. And then we also have been developing our own feature film concepts uh, and TV series concepts with a similar spirit and look and feel as One Small Step. Uh, and then because we're a startup company to keep the lights on, we're doing service work. So right now the team that animated One Small Step is animating a feature film called Wish Dragon, which is being produced by both Sony and a Chinese company called Base Effects. Uh, and that's a standard theatrical release, um, Sony or a Pixar or a DreamWorks movie. So that's kind of been great for our team because they've been growing and building their experience while we're developing new projects. Excellent. Well, I, I look forward to all, all, all that comes you know forward from you guys. And best of luck this Sunday. And I hope that everybody gets out to see One Small Step. It's such a beautiful film and they can all... I'll join me and cry, cry in solidarity. <laughs> very kind of you to say. Thank you so much, Tim. Yeah, thanks so much. Not a problem. Best of luck this Sunday. All right, thank you. Thank you. You bet. We'll see you.